should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday, Tuesday, July 11th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. It's Tuesday, so you know that it's my favorite day of the week because John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club is here with us. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here, Michelle. Geez, what a day in America, the reality show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us more, John. Oh, well, for everyone who's been tracking the uh, Trump and Russia story, I guess the latest is uh, that uh, Trump Jr., Donald Trump Jr., uh, admits he met with a uh, woman connected to the Kremlin who uh, ha said she had dirt on Hillary Clinton, and this is raising uh, questions from uh, legal eyes, um, saying that this, if not collusion, actually some folks are saying treason. A former lawyer for George W. Bush, in fact, calls it treason, flat out, but uh, you know, no one gets convicted of treason these days. But nonetheless, it is the worst dumpster fire so far of the Trump legal uh, woes. So, uh, you know, as has been predicted, this just keeps rolling along and getting deeper and deeper. And we're still not to the point yet where Robert Mueller's really, you know, rooting around and finding stuff. So um, buckle up. Is it really fire, though? Is it just another scene, like I said, of uh, America, the reality show? I mean, I, I, I know that there are a lot of us who are paying attention, who are taking this seriously, but we always come back to that question, like, could there actually be people of high, the highest form of government here in America be uh, incriminated or, um, uh, you know, could they, actually, could they actually be punished? Could there be consequences? Uh, that will depend on what Mueller actually comes up with when he issues his report, assuming he's not fired. Um, and there are, you know, some sober folks who are saying, look, nothing really is going to happen until Mueller comes out with his, uh, uh, his findings. But, um, you know, and, and you are starting to see, again, some more Republicans in Congress who are not even trying to defend this. So... Um, I, I think we'll see, I think you might see folks leaving the White House, perhaps uh, necessarily. Um, and, you know, folks like uh, uh, Jared Kushner and Don Trump Jr. and such, they're all hiring criminal lawyers right now to defend them. So, Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's getting pretty real then. Thank Very you much. for that. Yeah. I, yes. Once you start hiring a, uh, an attorney, a specific kind of attorney, <laughs> something else starts speaking for itself. Thanks so much for joining us here on the program. We have a great program for you. I'm excited to be in studio and to have a wonderful program for you. The first half, we have a special guest in which we'll discuss 
some philosophy, which, I mean, I have no bus- business discussing philosophy, but you'll want to listen and tune in to this because we're going to talk about just some uh, some theories that were presented, you know, before Donald Trump became Donald Trump. And that you know, for, for, for many of us who are new activists and or just plain young, um, <laughs> there were there were intelligent people who had predicted something like this that could happen with something like a democracy in which we live in. And then we'll spend the second half talking about actual activism, people who are out there, people who have been fighting, uh, such as the one of the founding members of ACT UP who will come on to talk to us about what it feels like to be arrested again um, for something that he believes in. So a great, great program. We'll go ahead and get today's show started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Well, who is Richard Rorty? I didn't even No, until I read an article recently uh, in The Atlantic in which the late philosopher was quoted from his book, Achieving Our Country, which was published back in 1998. And I have to read this passage because that is what stuck out to me. And uh, something about it just, uh, it it was a chord. It was something I could not ignore. So here goes. Members of labor unions and unorganized and unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported. Around the same time, they will, they will realize that suburban white-collar workers themselves, desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strongman to vote for, someone willing to assure them that, once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bonds, bond salesmen, and postmodernist professors will no, no longer be calling the shots. Once the strongman takes office, no one can predict what will happen, except producers of a reality show, perhaps, uh, in, if, if uh, Rorty were to live to 2017. Our guest today will help us talk about what Rorty meant in his book. He's the former president of the Richard Rorty Society. Currently, he teaches social and political theories at the Union and Union Institute and University Graduates College. Let's welcome Dr. Christopher Voperl to the show. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, and thank you for having me. So just with the passage itself, like I had just mentioned, I mean, I, by no means am I an academic. I had no idea who Richard Rorty is, but I'm just a regular, average, concerned citizen um, and, and seeing, you know, not that I'm thinking about it as a Democratic issue or a Republican issue or from a conservative to a left, but I'm just concerned. This passage stuck out to me. Let's talk about that very quickly. I mean, what do you what do you think? Uh, you know, Rorty, this book was published as I had mentioned back in 1998. So someone somehow had thought this through that uh, wh- wherever we were going to go in our political movement between left and right, someone like Donald Trump was going to be born. Yes, I mean these passages are incredibly prescient. Seemingly, um, you know, could have been written yesterday. Um, you know, the, as you mentioned, the Achieving Our Country book, uh, Leftist Thought in 20th Century America, um, was published in 1998 and was a series of lectures given at Harvard that primarily was aimed at the academic left. And Rorty was um, not only diagnosing things going on within the American 
political electorate, which we can come back to, but also critiquing the academic or cultural left for getting too preoccupied with issues of the recognition of identity and, as the passage noted, postmodern deconstruction of certain you know, Eurocentric ideals, and they had completely lost sight of basic issues of economic inequality. Uh, what what I thought was really interesting about that that I read in the I was, I'm referring to the uh, um, Atlantic article on, on this that included that quote was it, it, he was really pointing to the deep roots of what brought us Donald Trump uh, or a Trump type person if you will and uh, you know in other words it wasn't a it wasn't a shot out of the blue this was you know structural stuff that was bringing it up from you know economic structural stuff, but also then, of course, the misdirection on, on, on the left and trying to deal with it. What it, what it I, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this, but my, my, my assumption has been that even if, for example, Donald Trump quits, is fired, <laughs> whatever, leaves office, we're still going to have Trumpism then, right? Because those structural uh, issues still exist. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, it really was, as Rorty called it, um, a kind of bottom-up revolution, mm-hmm. um, but one that, you know, wasn't necessarily a progressive revolution expected by leftists, but one that was coming largely from um, white, working-class, even religious Americans. Um, and, you know, if we think back to the 1990s, you know, others, most notably, you know, Pat Buchanan, mm-hmm. also had noted you know, the ways in which um, working class um, ethnic white Americans were being, you know, hurt by globalization and the exportation of jobs. Um, but Rorty, unlike Buchanan, you know, rather than calling for or, you know, even sanctioning a nativist return to, um, you know, closing boundaries, he really sought to figure out how we could channel um, this white resentment, if you will, in ways that could inform a progressive politics. And the way that he primarily saw this happening is by um, trying to move away from the recognition of difference and diversity that had characterized you know, leftist politics as a result of the rise of identity politics in the early 1990s, debates around multiculturalism, and to try to get them um, to build a, uh, and to think about building national electoral coalitions that could support, you know, progressive policies that would benefit everyone. Um, uh, there was a, a, an interview once with uh, Norman Mailer, and, and he was asked something about the role of, of intellectuals, you know, communicating to, if you will, the average person. And uh, he, he said, well, the, you know, the, the intellectual's job is not to communicate to the average person, the intellectual's job is to communicate to other intellectuals and hope that out of that conversation and, and, and debate and discussion, all of that kind of stuff, will come ideas that can then, you know, uh, circulate elsewhere in society. Um, how important is it, or maybe why is it seen as so important in, in, by Richard Rorty's uh, ideas that stuff that's in, like, you know, liberal academic circles would have such a profound impact on, you know, uh, uh, political movements with millions and millions of people. You know, why, why w- do, do we really think, for example, the 
you know, 50-year-old woman in Wisconsin who, you know, works for the party at election time or whatever, that she's thinking about, you know, identity politics or something like that, or that, you know, wouldn't she actually already be thinking about things very much on terms of, you know, this is going to take away my health care or something like that? Yeah, exactly. And, and that was, you know, the disconnect um, between, you know, leftist academics and what potentially leftist voters were thinking. Um, uh, Vordy, you know, to address the question about intellectuals, you know, he comes out of a tradition of North American thought, American pragmatism, that really prides itself on uh, public intellectuals, the idea that um, philosophy and intellectual reflection more broadly shouldn't preoccupy itself with, you know, the problems of philosophers that only philosophers care about, but rather to engage and try to uh, remedy the social, moral, political issues of the day. I mean, Vordy's hero was John Dewey, um, Jane Addams, another pragmatist intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, and even Rorty's uh, student, Cornell West, tried to exemplify this tradition of public intellectuals that are able to um, you know, leave behind the narrow debates of academia and try to influence the political discourse of the day. Michelle Miao and John Zipperer were speaking with Chris uh, Voperil, who is the former president of the Richard Rorty Society, so I can't think of anyone <laughs> uh, you know, more qualified to talk about what, what Rorty meant. And now that uh, a lot of people in the media are starting to write about uh, Rorty's philosophies or theories on what's happening right now, the interesting thing, though, Chris, is uh, when Rorty published this book, Achieving Our Country, it, it didn't get... Uh, I guess, the rave reviews, or it wasn't necessarily um, embraced, especially, uh, of course, by the, the, the liberals or left, considering that it, it's a critique of the left. But now it seems to be uh, picking up. It seems to be embraced. I mean, Amazon um, has to reprint, and I think it's the first time it's actually needed to be reprinted because of popularity. Why do you think that is? That's a great question. I mean, in a way, you know, Rorty was ahead of his time. Um, you know, the leftist academics weren't ready for that message. You know, they weren't willing at the time to give up what seemed like, you know, uh, critiques of all manner of forms of patriarchy, oppression, you know, Eurocentrism, um, and the powerful critiques that were marshaled informed by, as we noted, certain postmodernist currents like deconstruction, um, to give that up for a focus on what Rorty was calling prosaic national politics. It just didn't seem very radical to be worrying about getting the vote out, you know, and building electoral coalitions. But now, after 20 years of um, worsening economic inequality, um, claims that Rorty made in that book that seems out of touch and reactionary at the time, like nobody is setting up a program in unemployed studies or homeless studies or trailer park studies um, because these forms of otherness really aren't other in the right way for leftist academics to take them seriously. Um, you know, at the time, that didn't go over well. I mean, the book, by and large, is a call for a reinvigoration of American national pride. And that can be, you know, a potentially dangerous thing. But he felt that some 
sort of commonality was needed to try to build the sorts of electoral uh, majorities that were responsible for getting, you know, New, De- New Deal social programs in place, um, you know, in an earlier period. Chris, let, we're, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we want to continue our discussion about Rorty's and his views and, and, and just kind of that overall uh, passage from his book, Achieving Our Country, and, and applying it to how someone like Donald Trump has, uh, has become president of the United States. Don't go away. Stay with us, okay? Yes, of course. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on the program this Tuesday. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us, and our special guest on the phone is Professor Chris Voperl, who's the former president of the Richard Rorty Society, and uh, we're speaking about Richard Rorty, who's the late philosopher. Um, He's also the author of Achieving Our Country, and in that book, he actually had, uh, I don't don't even want to say he guessed it, but he had warned the left or America that something like this would happen, and it did. I think, you know, the narrative today that we see or hear in the media is like people are asking, how did the, how did this how did the, the it was the rights, you know, the, the fault, the rise of the right or this alternative right, I think, is the uh, the word that people are using these days. When in, in fact, we have someone like Richard Rorty who said, well, you know, caution to the left, our actions are part of what we're doing within the movement could create 
someone like a Donald Trump, a reality star as president of the United States. So, Chris, just to continue on this conversation, uh, you know, my question is, I, I wonder uh, kind of what Rorty's thoughts were when we talk about um, cultural identity or cultural politics and that that the way that we describe cultural politics, especially in the last few years, has been inclusive of, you know, the LGBTQ rights fight. It's also been inclusive of uh, the civil rights movement and equal rights movement and, and women's rights and all these things that he had uh, mentioned uh, would be the first rights to go when someone like a Donald Trump uh, would, you know, rise to power. Um, but I wonder, you know, if, if any, if he had thought at all in terms of how would we discuss, how would we include these rights um, in our movement and our fight without making it just that, cultural politics? Yeah, he, you know, distinguished between cultural politics and what he called real politics in the Achieving Our Country book, which I think was, um, you know, not the best way to put it, perhaps. But he meant by real politics, um, you know, the politics of elections and political parties and, and so on. Um, he was very much, you know, um, a philosophical liberal in the sense of thinking that the appeals to rights and, you know, the tradition out of which we get the Declaration of Independence and so on are essential. But the issue came back to um, how best to combine, you know, a focus on universal rights with injustices that need to be remedied that are experienced by particular groups. Um, and I think it's a question of how to navigate this movement between what to do to remedy an injustice that may only be felt by a transgender person with, you know, a conception of rights that essentially is, is thought to be universal and blind uh, or neutral when it comes to the particulars of race or ethnicity or sexuality and so on. How, on the uh, academic side, uh, among other philosophers and, and, and uh, thinkers, uh, how have Rorty's uh, views fared, say, over the past 20 years? I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing now the general public kind of seeing some of these ideas and saying, oh, hey, wow, look, he's, you know, he said we could end up here, and we did. But as Michelle mentioned before, when his book first came out, you know, it, it was met with, uh, you know, a fair amount of uh, uh, opposition or disagreement. How is he faring today, and what, what trend do you think it's on among the academic community? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think today his work is certainly being... Um, rediscovered or discovered for the first time and being reassessed. You know, the Richard Rorty Society founded in 2014. It's mm -hmm. relatively recent. Um, Rorty passed away in 2007. But by the time this Achieving Our Country book came out in 1998, Rorty had already been writing and publishing for several decades. And it was actually his 1979 book, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, that put him on the map and just became a huge international sensation. By and large, the reception of the book was much more positive outside of philosophy, really? across the humanities, mm -hmm. um, than in philosophy. Um, Rorty was viewed very skeptically and critically by, by philosophers because 
in a way, he was viewed as having um, been a kind of Trojan horse <laughs> that after publishing and writing technical, you know, specialist uh, essays in analytic philosophy, um, he suddenly threw that all the way to turn to social and political issues and really to undermine the distinctiveness of philosophy altogether. But after um, you know, a book in 1979 that sold many millions of copies and was translated into over 20 languages, he already was probably the, you know, the leading uh, living American intellectual at the time. So it is, it's been very critically received by philosophers, um, but that is starting to change as people now are listening to his message and seeing how the implications of his philo- philosophical critiques have really helped him get a grasp on social and political reality in a way that no one really had expected. Yeah, and the 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 issue of, of how it kind of tracked, or how reality, if you will, tracked to uh, his prediction there on, you know, that us people would, in that situation, would reach for a strong man. Um, obviously, there's a hope there on the left that, uh, you know, for someone making this argument that the left would wake up and, and, and it readjusts politics and such. If it doesn't, if it, if it uh, you know, fractures and, and uh, you know, or, or hardens even farther on the left or whatever, um, what do you think those folks, the, the Trump voters, will do in, in a society, say, that it goes down increasingly down that, that strong man authoritarian uh, path? You know, are they likely to rebel or will they in some, you know, how long will they continue to say, well, at least it's working for me? Yeah, this is really the essential question. I mean, this is hard to predict. I mean, I think at this point we can say that there, you know, there was forms of, you know, suffering out there that simply weren't being heard. Um, And, you know, now I think as Rorty predicted, you know, in Trump, they found someone who would listen. But uh, as we've already seen, you know, uh, the lack of policy initiatives coming out of the Trump administration in general, and, you know, that would help the voters who actually elected him, you know, in places like West Virginia, you know, or Kansas, or anywhere um, outside of, you know, the liberal coastlines, um, would benefit at all. So if it turns out that Trump was a kind of, um, you know, false prophet, if you will, then I think they're going to look elsewhere for someone to take their concerns seriously. And this is the opportunity, you know, for the Democratic Party going forward. Former uh, Russian chess champion Gary Kasparov uh, recently was out here in San Francisco, and, and he was saying that we're actually lucky that it was Trump who showed up the weakness in our system and you know he's the one who kind of broke through and 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 won because what he was saying was because Trump basically has no ideas has no grand plans has no competency to achieve anything and that's certainly what we're seeing in Washington right now um, you know we're at least we're, we're lucky rather than having gotten a really wily and smart you know uh, political operative who was able to ride this uh, wave um, my worry is always that, well, once someone sees how it's been, that it can be done, you know, others will, of course, jump on that train. Yes, I, I think that that's very insightful. And it is the case that, you know, were Trump less 
uh, worried about um, you know his own image and ego, and actually more committed to bringing to fruition some of the ideas, um, you know, the the very ugly ideas that that he was turned up in the electorate. To, I think we'd be in a much worse place. Well, then. Um we should just like ask you to like give us the prediction of who's going to win in 2020 and we'll just bet on everything like that because we know you'll get it right. <laughs> um, well, I'm of course a political theorist and not a, a political uh, strategist. Um, but clearly I think the opportunity is there for the left to, to rethink, you know, the vocabularies by which it attempts to speak to issues of injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Perhaps, you know, bringing in the economic dimension and, you know, the idea of taking care of basic needs for everyone, you know, whether that's health care or some kind of universal basic income um, and, and other rights, that would give them a platform for channeling the kind of resentment that Rorty diagnosed and that Trump exploited in a different direction. And I think... Because there are, as we know, voters who would have liked to vote for Sanders cast a vote for Trump. I think there's still an opportunity there. And this isn't, you know, um, something that is necessarily going to repeat itself for many election cycles to come. Yeah, it it certainly is the opportunity for uh, Democrats to come up with programs and policies that that address really a lot of the unfairnesses and the, the hurt out there across so many yeah, the, different aspects, parts of the country. So we'll see how they do. Perhaps a um, you know the instructive election cycle is actually 2008, because um, I mean as I said, Rorty passed away in 2007. He didn't live to see um, you know President Obama be elected, but the campaign that Obama put together in 2008, many of us observed, was essentially a page out of the Achieving Our Country playbook. Um, you know, yes, we can is is a kind of mobilizing, you know, slogan that was linked to a vision that um, was going to improve America for everyone. Um, you know, Obama didn't run on racial difference, as we know, and he received right. much criticism from the left because of that. Um, he cast himself in much broader terms. Um, and perhaps there's something to be learned there uh, for the left in uh, 2020 and even 2018. Chris, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today about Richard Rorty. Uh, certainly a, a learning moment for me and it sinking in. And I think that, uh, you know, all of this is so important, especially right now. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue the second half of our show and we'll talk to Eric Sawyer, who's a founding member of ACT UP. Don't go away. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. 
the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miel, and John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club is here with us. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for letting me have you. So the, the first half, we talked about, you know, just some theories, some political theories and philosophies about how, uh, you know, the idea of democracy and having parties from the left and from the right and, and what, I guess, the impact could be politically uh, by how we create our movements. And Richard Rorty was a philosopher in, in which he critiqued the left and talked about how cultural uh, uh, and identity politics could end up leaving out a certain group or at least creating someone like Donald Trump and giving him the power to do so. Um, so it's a very interesting conversation. Well, now in our next half, we'll spend some time talking to activists who had, who had been a part of the movements, I should say, who have actually gone out, who have seen it, who have protested, who have been arrested, continue to get arrested, um, and, and focus very much so on what I would say the politics or the issues. And so our next guests um, is Angel Soto and Eric Sawyer. Eric Sawyer, Sawyer is a founding member of ACT UP. And so for a lot of you who are listening to the Michelle Miao Show and, and aware of LGBTQ history know of how active ACT UP was um, during the HIV AIDS crisis within our movement. But in, when you think about where we're at today and the Affordable Care Act and so many Americans being upset and or angry and or threatened by the idea of not being able to have access to health care. I mean, when we're uniting right, you know, around this issue, uh, there's, there's really, in my opinion, no room for the identity politics that we talked about in the first half, and it's really focused on what we all want, which is access to health care. So let's welcome Angel and Eric to the program. Thanks so much for being here with us. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. 
So, Eric, um, I'll start with you uh, to make it easy. I mean, uh, you know, the, we've been hearing from interviews recently of your arrest, and you've just been able to articulate kind of what that means to you and why it's so critical and important. I mean, I can't get over the photo that the media is circulating. You have a big old smile as you're being arrested. <laughs> um, yeah, talk to us about that day and kind of, you know, what the motive was behind that, behind that and your thoughts and feelings about the Affordable Care Act and this administration trying to repeal it. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the purpose for going there was uh, to try to impress upon the senators that this bill is dead on arrival. There's no fix for this bill. Uh, the only thing that can be uh, done to this bill is to kill it. And uh, the reasons why uh, that we feel that way is that it's going to strip 22 million people from uh, the health care rate. You know, if, if you're going to eliminate 22 million people from from healthcare, that's not a that's not a fix to the healthcare system. It's going to uh, take seven uh, over 700 billion dollars out of the uh, Medicare uh, trust fund. Um, there are health economists who say that it may very well bankrupt the Medicaid system within 10 years. Um, and there's there's you know. Uh, point after point after point uh, of flaws in, in this, this bill. It's, you know, not going to fund uh, any Planned Parenthood services, and there's lots of states like Alaska and West Virginia, for example, two of the places, uh, two of the senators whose office we went to, where the only health care for women in those states is Planned Parenthood. Uh, so it means no health care, no sexual reproductive health rights for, for women in, in uh, those two states. Um, and uh, it's going to wipe out Medicare expansion in a number of states, which you know provides uh, valuable services not only to people with HIV but people with other chronic uh, illnesses. And so, um, when you couple the fact that it's going to give you know the the estimates go between a half a billion to almost a trillion dollars worth of tax breaks to rich people and to corporations, at the same time it's you know, cutting 22 million people out of the healthcare system because we can't afford it. it. You know, the hypocrisy of oh well, we can afford a you know a half a billion or a trillion dollar tax cut to rich people, but we can't afford healthcare uh, for for poor people is it's just ludicrous. And you know, we have to stand up, put our bodies on the line. You know, take over people's offices and say, look, if you're not going to do the right thing, you know, you need to get out of the way and let us run your offices so that, you know, all of these people don't die for lack of access to health care. And, and, you know, I was smiling, you know, largely because of the fact that, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, take over the offices, uh, put a lot of pressure on the, the uh, senators who uh, either have reason because of the fact that Medicare uh, and the Affordable Care Act ex- and uh, Medicaid expansion, that those things are providing so much health care in- into their states that they need to uh, and are in many cases like um, Senator um, Mikowski from Alaska, whose office I, I helped take over, uh, they're-, they're already making um, comments in the press that the bill is going to harm their citizens. Murkowski is, you know, working on an amendment that would allow them to to um, use Medicare to reimburse uh, Planned Parenthood services in her state because she knows it'll strip 
strip uh, health care from, from women. And so, um, you know, it was just uh, a pleasure to know that we were able to pull off our plan and to put pressure on these senators and, and hopefully get them to change their minds and, and vote to kill the bill. Do you think it was a complete surprise when you showed up there, or do they kind of know when there are protests? You know, do they follow folks on social media or something? Do they know it was Well, I, I think they, that clearly they were aware that there were lots of activities going the day before. There was a uh, people's filibuster in front of the Senate where uh, different groups uh, took an hour and, you know, both invented, uh, invited uh, health care representatives and, and their membership as well as senators and congressmen that are trying to kill the bill to speak about why the bill needed to be killed. Uh, we went, in, you know, right after Planned Parenthood, the, uh, the, the uh, HIV AIDS committee uh, or community took an hour uh, immediately following Planned Parenthood and just before the American Federations of Teachers. And so they knew there was a lot of uh, activity uh, happening uh, during the week, but I don't think they expected us uh, you know, to be taking over their office. They, uh, you know, tried to get us to schedule a meeting to come back in a day or two. And, uh, you know, we, we literally had to tell them, I don't think you understand. If you don't produce your senator to speak with us now, we're not going to leave here, and you're going to have to call uh, the police to make us leave. And then we started, you know, having people uh speak their truth about how the bill was going to, you know, strip them of health care and ultimately kill them, uh, started doing chants about kill the bill, uh, health care for all, stuff like that. Uh, and so they were kind of forced to, to call the, uh, the police and um, ask us to be escorted out. How, how were you treated by the police? Uh, actually, the police were uh, very respectful. Um, they, you know, didn't really rough us up. Uh, they gave us the option to, you know, walk on our own accord if we wanted to do that, um, both because, you know, A, there's less chance of us getting hurt by them dropping us or them getting hurt by having to carry, you know, in my case, somebody who weighs almost 200 pounds. Um, and so uh, they, you know, treated us fairly well after the arrest as well, although we were in handcuffs for more than 10 hours, which, you know, certainly isn't a comfortable uh, position to be in. Uh, but overall, you know, other than the fact that we had handcuffs on us, no access to, to food uh, or, or bathrooms without, uh, you know, being escorted um, was a bit uh, uncomfortable. This question is for Angel. Angel, and you know, uh, we're sitting here, we're listening to Eric, and uh, you know, Eric has the experience, um, the emotions. I mean, the history of of civil disobedience and fighting back in this way. What what are what are your thoughts? And kind of you know, hearing him speak about this. Um, it, Lots of new activists out there are wondering if civil disobedience needs to be a part of our fight or this resistance movement. It absolutely needs to be a part of this fight at this point because they're not listening to us. And like Eric said, it's a tax break for the rich. I mean, it's not just poor people who are going to be losing insurance. It's people who work, people who have families, people who do the honest thing and try to make an honest living. I mean, 22 million people without insurance, we're going back to the 80s. 
There's going to be a lot of people out there with serious ailments who are going to be dying if this bill passes. This bill does need to be dead on arrival. And, I mean, I was anxious going up there, you know, to be arrested, but um, I never felt more right about what I was doing at that moment than I did when it was happening. This needs to happen. Uh, do you think it's more uh, effective to do it there in the halls of Congress or maybe, you know, we hear when they go back to their districts and they hold, you know, meetings or, the, or even at their local district offices, do you think maybe one or the other has more impact or is it just a matter of we, you need to be at both places? and, and be We need place? to keep hitting it at all sides every time. They need to know that they're not going to just put us to the side like, like they're doing right now. Those people do not want to respond to us. They see what it is. They do not want to do the right thing. Our government has lost its integrity, okay? It's time that they wake up and do the right thing or get out of those seats. Well, it also seems interesting that the people who are going to be hurt the most or the places where there are the most people who are going to lose health care coverage are, in fact, in the Trump red states. That's right. I mean, I mean overwhelmingly. I, 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 I have children. I have a family, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, knowing that, you know, my kids are not going to be able to go to the doctors if they get sick or me being diabetic, I'm not going to be able to get the treatment that I need in order to keep myself going. Um, it's upsetting. It's upsetting. And, you know, I um, was glad to do what needed to be done yesterday. It still needs to be done until they look at what needs to be looked at the way it needs to be looked at. We need to keep going. Angel, we'll, yeah, yes, go, go ahead. I was going to say, the, the one thing that uh, makes it easier for coordinated action uh, to do in Washington is, you know, we can bring a lot of people uh, together in D.C. and provide support for them and do a joint action at multiple senators' uh, uh, offices at D in D.C., and it's easier to pull the press to one location uh, to cover it um, so that there's kind of uh, maximum media uh, impact. It definitely helps uh, to do stuff uh, in districts. And, you know, luckily there are a lot of uh, organizations that are doing uh, demonstrations or, or doing um, uh, actions, raising their voice in town hall meetings uh, in districts, but in terms of our groups, you know, coordinating uh, one thing uh, uh, that is going to multiple senators and congressmen's offices at the same time, it's much easier to do in D.C. Sure, sure. I, I just wanted to ask, you know, a question, and, and either uh, Angel or Eric can answer this, but earlier I brought up, uh, you know, cultural or, or identity politics and how uh, the right has used that in a way to kind of use it against the rest of uh, America, in my opinion. But for something like the Affordable Care Act, I mean, this impacts, as you, both of you had mentioned, millions and millions of Americans in which we can leave behind identities, and it's something that we all can unite and fight for. Um, maybe you guys would like to talk about, you know, the importance of unity and how we can work with other communities to fight the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, well, that's one thing that uh, something like health care uh, is, a, you know, is a perfect issue for is that, you know, everyone uh, has a human right to health. And regardless of whether you're, uh, 
you know, black, white, red, yellow, whether you're Muslim, uh, Christian, uh, Hindu, agnostic, whether you're LGBTQ or whether you're straight, um, you know, everybody needs health care. And uh, as Angel was saying, it largely impacts the poorest of people who are dependent on uh, Medicaid, Medicare, uh for uh, their health care, but there are lots of people who are lower middle class who are working, whose employers don't provide group uh, coverage, uh, and if they have a family and a, a mortgage or rent and car payments and gas and, and you know, uh, children with, with expenses can't afford health care, and uh, they uh, the uh, Obamacare provided either, in some people's cases, um, financial assistance to pay for the health care or tax credits to, to pay for the health care or subsidies. Uh, and if you kill Obamacare, those working poor people uh, are going to be, uh, you know, forced to choose between their car payments, their, their you know, putting food on the table, um, or, or their health care. And you know, if you have chronic uh, health conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure or cardiovascular um, illnesses or you have an, you know, epileptic child or a child with asthma or, or you know, name a million different types of things, um, you know, your family's health is going to be uh, endangered and, and in sometimes a matter of, to, the, to the point of, uh, of life or death. And so... Um, it, it crosses so many lines and affects so many people uh, that it's a perfect issue for uh, coalition activities. And, you know, we had doctors and nurses and healthcare providers and physical therapists and dentists and, and uh, patients with, you know, any type of, of uh, illness, including disabled people in wheelchairs and, and feeding tubes uh, participate in, in this action. Uh, and I, I think it added to the power. So uh, we're talking to you. You're both in still in Washington. Am I correct? Uh, no, we're we're both ba actually back in New York. Oh, you are. Uh, yeah. I got yeah. I got back this morning at five. Oh, um, long flight. And uh, you know, it, it it was like I said, a good thing to do. Sure. It, it's something that we have to continue to do. Um, like our government has to change. It's affecting so many different people. Um, the middle class, the poor. Um, lots of children are going to be without insurance. Um, I'm going to be without insurance. Um, but, you know, these things have to change. I mean, our government needs to look at the way they're doing their jobs. They work for us. We don't work for them. Why are, why are we having to ask for these things? I mean, these basic human rights. I mean, right. it, it, it's a shame. It needs right. to change. Absolutely. And I thank both of you for your leadership and for doing something. And that's just my point. Uh, there's so many people out there who are looking to get involved or to do something, even if it means getting arrested. Um, I know that you mentioned there are several other groups or organizations out there who are doing something. But if people are tuning in right now and they, they are just inspired by what you're saying, uh, will there be another action? Uh, what's the next plans, or, or what are the next plans, and how can people get involved? Uh, there are plans for uh, possibly uh, the end of the week, another demonstration. Um, uh, it somewhat will be predicated based on what the timetable is for the bill that gets 
uh, announced, uh, you know, either at the end of the day today or tomorrow. Uh, the last I heard was that the revisions to the bill uh, will not come out until uh, the, the earliest Thursday of this week. Uh, then the budget office has to, you know, do an analysis of, of uh, that bill, um, which will mean a vote is not likely uh, before next week. Uh, and if that calendar remains uh, true, the demonstrations probably will uh, roll forward to early next re week. But if it looks like that, uh, you know, revised text comes out earlier and the, the budget can do the, the budget office can do the analysis in time for a vote on Friday, uh, then, you know, we may, we may have demonstrations um, on Thursday. Uh, there's, um, you know, people can send us an email. Um, you know, my email is erics at gmhc.org. Uh, Angels is angels at gmhc.org. And if you want to even call me, my number is 212-367-1175. I want to thank you both for your time and uh, thank you for doing you and for the leadership and the courage to, to fight for millions and millions of Americans. Uh, our, our pleasure. And uh, we definitely encourage everyone to, you know, send emails to their uh, congressmen and especially their senators and urge them uh, to vote no on, on uh, this bill. And, to you know, get the numbers for their senators' offices and call and and voice their uh, opposition to the, to the bill uh, to the staff of the senators and to also uh, write letters uh, to visit the their local uh, uh, district offices of their congressmen and their senators and tell them how important it is uh, to not roll back Obamacare and to uh, ensure that the current bill does not go forward. Kill this bill. Kill the bill. Kill the bill. Kill the bill. That's right. Kill the bill. Thank you all. Don't go away when we come back. John Zippiner, Zippiner, <laughs> Zipper and I will uh, close with our final thoughts. And it's, it's a really, really short break. Don't go away. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, July 11th. It feels so, so good to be back in studio and to be reading and to be thinking and to be learning something. Um, I know uh, I know. John knows how I feel. <laughs> well, actually, I want to thank you for I had never heard of Richard Rorty, Rorty before. Uh-huh. And uh, he does sound very interesting. And, and uh, it's it's I'm glad to see people are paying attention to what he wrote and, and are chewing over the ideas. Yeah. You know, something interesting is happening in the media. I mean, you know, the evidence, by the way, the emails, right, of Donald Trump Jr. perhaps uh, colluding Mm -hmm. (laughs) with a foreign country um, as far as the election goes, a presidential election. I mean, who had their hands on those emails? Obviously, I mean, were those emails on a private server or they – it's funny that I even – I'm saying that, right, because we we never even talked about uh, elected officials and their emails until Hillary Clinton, I feel like. Um, But what I'm trying to demonstrate with that is I think that I think that the media is finally opening their eyes to the power of it. And before we're succumbing to, you know, this big bully, because that's what Donald Trump does. He bullies the media. Everybody, but um, <laughs> everybody. Yeah, I mean, every time we talk about uh, the media and Trump on our week-to-week political roundtable, you know, we always get questions from the audience of, well, you know, what the media helped create him, and, and they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, CNN, CBS. I mean, they were explicit about it. Mm-hmm. Yep, so he hits huge ratings. You know, it's not good for it's not good for the country, but it's good for CBS. I think was a, a close paraphrase. Yeah, and and the conclusion to what I was trying to say in terms of the power of the media now is that you've got journalists who are real journalists. I mean, people like Connor Friedman, people um, like, uh, gosh, um, so, I mean, you you know, I I mentioned Connor Friedman because he was the author of the Atlantic article that I came across that quoted uh, uh, Richard Rorty. But these are people who have been doing the research for a while now. So it's not like they're like new bloggers or anything that Donald Trump might be the resemblance of like people who don't actually have real talent, but you know, come to power because of, um, I'm just going to, I mean, I'm going to be so bad. Maybe if Donald Trump's listening, I'm going to jail or something. Some, somebody's going to be outside the studio ready to kidnap me, but I'm not really not that important. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that the, you know, don't be afraid people, um, you we have the smarts, we have the intelligence to freely think. This country is always celebrated free thinkers. True, and I think right now um, there is some excellent press going on, uh, press work, you know, media uh, news digging and investigative reporting, and uh, you know the ones getting the most attention probably these days, Washington Post and the New York Times. Hats off to them because they're doing really good work. Mm-hmm. Um, but others too, you know, uh, and CNN even have, as Donald Trump's administration threatens to, you know, block a merger of the parent corporation unless CNN stops, you know, provides him a safe place to hide. Um, but so it's this is kind of support your your local journalist day because they are doing some good work and but they're only part of the equation right it's that's everybody right. else too that's right well John and I have exciting news but we'll announce it later don't forget he hosts his own show here on the Michelle Miao show Fridays four o'clock Pacific Standard Time the week to week political roundtable talk for everything else you can head to michellemiao.com we'll be back tomorrow at the same time.